Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush. My name is Michael. And this is Gabe. So today we actually wanted to go into one of the topics that we mentioned in the first episode that we would be interested in but have not gotten to as of yet. We believe that we have kind of given a fundamental look at some of the concepts within wine, but another one of our passions is actually beer. Indeed. So one thing we've noticed is that a lot of times people in these different industries end up thinking uh, or at least communicating that their industry is the industry, you know, and so they'll say, oh, well, you know, with wines, it's just grapes or with beers, it's just hops or with whiskey, it's just whiskey. And we've actually come to discover that all of these things have their own characters, their own histories. And their own variations that make them a rich world to explore. Yeah. And if you're into whiskey, uh, I did a bunch of notes for this episode. I was not really familiar with the beer making process. But if you're into whiskey, some of this might actually be pretty familiar because there's a lot more crossover than I had originally thought that there was between the two methods of making them. Yeah. So we're going to be going into some of the history of beer very briefly, just some of the basic brewing fundamentals, and then some of the different styles that you might come to expect a lot of which you've probably already experienced but hopefully we can give some context to that enjoyment so yeah. i know i'm looking forward to it i think uh gabe is as well yep. he actually uh produced the notes for this episode and i i cannot overstate the organization <laughs> of this um so this is this is going to be a lot of fun a lot of stuff is lifted directly from the internet so don't give me too much credit yeah. there but well, and uh, that's the thing. I mean, once once more and more knowledge becomes more commonplace, uh, the fact is, is that everybody's trying to educate themselves. You can only educate yourself on the world that you're born into. And luckily, living in Richmond, we actually have a wonderful group of resources to be going off of. Yep. So Richmond is a beer town. Very much a beer town. And we've been known for this. I think probably two of the most popular would be Legend Brewery, especially the Legend Brown and then Hardywood, which was one of the first breweries to actually incorporate barrel aging, specifically spirits barrel aging, mm -hmm. into their their brewing process. And they came out with the bourbon barrel aged Hardywood stout. Hardywood was my intro, uh, my introduction, sorry, to beer. Really? I was yeah. just about to ask, actually, what your introduction to beer was. So I used to work at a, a local grocery store. And I remember, I want to say... Whatever the year was, probably 2014, 2015, I want to say it's the year that they started the gingerbread stout. Mm. Maybe not the year they started, but at least the year that it became popular. I think the first year was 2014, but don't quote me on that. So, I couldn't drink yet. Yeah, so that would have been around the time that I remember this happening. And I remember we had a display set up. And at this point, I had maybe had like Coors or Heineken or something. Mm. I, I was you know, fairly young still myself. So I wasn't really drinking a whole lot or had not had a wide variety of drinks under my belt. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, I have to get a bottle of this stuff when we get it in again, because that whole display, which is probably a good like eight to 10 foot square Jeez. display sold out by the time my shift ended. And it went up during that same shift. So uh, if that kind of gives you any indication as to how popular beer is around yeah. here, that's, I think, kind of the quintessential <laughs> example oh, yeah. right there. I mean, it, you can just walk around Scott's Edition and you're within 
the walking distance of like three different breweries. Yeah. If not five, depending on how long you can walk. Yeah, exactly. Um, and how much you've had at yeah, their previous breweries. Yeah. And uh, we also like them a little on the strong side. Yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe just do a half pour, which is available in uh, various different breweries. Ask your local beerista today. Beer, beerista. Beerista. That's what we're going with. That's what we're going with. <laughs> um, I'm keeping it in. <laughs> oh, no. I'm totally okay with this, actually. Uh, and, and that's the thing. This It's a whole culture that has surrounded this. Obviously, with COVID, there's been a little bit less of the, the traveling yeah. with it. Um, but for the longest time, it was it's what you did here. You would go to different ones. I actually was uh, privileged to be with somebody who became uh, or was working with somebody who is one of uh, the judges that ended up being prevalent here in Richmond and going to the different breweries and just seeing the different crafts that they were creating, their creativity, their atmospheres. It's been one of some of the, the best experiences that I've had with friends. Of course, when I started, I wasn't allowed to drink the beers. We were all being very good boys and girls. Very good. And so the people around me were drinking. I was just smelling. Um, very well behaved of you. Very well behaved. Yeah. yeah. But there, there are all sorts of things that have been here. And Richmond has a very long history of beer. We are actually the first city to can beer. Uh, so the first canned beer that was ever sold was actually sold from the Kruger Brewing Company. That was done here, and it was given a raving review from the at the time paper. Can you still find it? Uh, no, I don't believe that you can, unless mm. somebody knows better than I do. Well, you can still get PBR. I'm sure it's probably comparable. Yeah. PBR is is if if you're not from the area, PBR is like the Richmond beer that you have if you're going to a music venue or you're going to a concert or a friend's house. It's, it's uh, normally sold for a dollar. Yeah, it's it's very cheap and normally is uh is also uh, paired with a rail. So it's um it's it's quite quite the cultural thing here. <laughs> Uh, going into some some of these brewing fundamentals, what did you get in your research? So first we start off with beer. All beer is made from some type of grain. Yes. Uh, so we can have barley, we can have wheat, sometimes oats are added, uh, you can have rye, you can have all these different things. But basically you have these kernels mm -hmm. and they have locked away inside of them some starch. Yep. And that starch during the growing process would be used to sprout and fuel the plant to grow. Now, when we are making beer, what we're doing is we are unlocking that potential in order to make something delicious instead. Yep. So going into a little bit of, of what this meant for history, it was actually a way of just storing this stuff. This Every single step in this process was to unlock and then kind of put in a time bubble all of these nutrients, including the sugars. So you have alcohol, which is preserving it. You have hops, which is preserving it. And we'll get more into that as we go through this list. Yeah. Um, but this stuff has been around for centuries. Yeah. This is this is basic built not to get hyperbolic. Uh, as Gabe was telling me, I had I was in danger of being early. <laughs> Michael's very passionate about this subject. I am very. Passionate I'm having to rein him in a little bit, just slightly. You actually would have entire civilizations that were allowed to progress because of the fact that they had different ways of storing their different types of food resources. Now, luckily for us, we can process ethanol. Us, bonobos, chimps, uh, and orangutans, we, we can all do this. 
And because of the fact that we became methodical about our storage practices, we were able to build cities. So first and foremost, we have the malt. We have just grabbing these grains. Mm -hmm. So you take the grains and you sprout them or you germinate them. And during this process, you're allowing them to grow just a little bit before halting it so that it doesn't get too much converted. Yeah. Uh, And normally, in order to do that, you'll heat it up. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're wetting them in order to get them to germinate. Then you're heating them up in order to get them to stop. Yeah. Um, And there's actually size requirements. The sprites have to be at least... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the sprouts have to be at least two millimeters. Okay. And if you're wondering why does germinating make any difference, germinating will actually release enzymes in the grains that will help further down the process to actually break those starches that are locked away in these kernels into sugar. Precisely. And those are, uh, I believe it's alpha and beta amylase. Those are the enzymes that are in those things that, again, would be what broke them down into sugars to produce energy for the plant. But instead, it's what is used after roasting. So when we roast it, this is actually going to be where we kind of lay the foundation for what style of beer this is going to be. Yeah. So uh, when you look at a beer, one of the first things that you'll notice because you have eyes, unless we have viewers without eyes. For those of you who are viewers without eyes, I do apologize. You'll notice the color. So it's going to be light. It's going to be amber, which is more of those like you know caramel colors. And then it's going to be dark. Between those, it's typically going to be what type of malt was used and how much that malt was roasted. Yeah. So with your lighter beers, it's going to be not as much roasted. With your ambers, it's going to be sort of roasted unless it's an Irish red, which has just like a small amount of uh, a darker roasted. And then you have your darkest roasted malts, yeah. which are going to produce more of those chocolatey flavors. Yep. You can even think of it in terms of like coffee. Mm-hmm. Your lighter coffees are going to have lighter flavors. Your darkest coffees are going to have those bigger roasted flavors. Yeah. So after we've kind of set the foundation for what style of beer that we're going for, we would then go into the next stage, which is to grind them all up. Yep. FYI, the combination is called a grist bill. If you're a whiskey drinker listening to this, you might have been thinking, that sounds like a mash bill. Yeah, tell, tell us more about some of the terminology here. Yeah, so a grist bill is just the proportion of the combination of the grains you're using. Very, again, similar to a mash bill and whiskey. And then, as you said, then it goes into what's called a grist mill, which is where you then um, you, you mill them, you grind them up. Yeah. And that process helps release your starches. And yeah. And that will go into mashing. Yeah. So then we we uh, take that, we get the grist, we combine it with water, and then we are heating it. Now, you don't want to boil it. So the heating actually activates those enzymes. So when you crack the seeds open during the grinding process, that's what releases those starches. But when you heat them up with some water you actually are allowing those enzymes to do the work of breaking down all of those starches into sugars. And these sugars, molecularly, are they're they're just small. They're so small that they are able to be consumed by, uh, oh gosh, where did, I I forget where I heard it, but they described them as little (laughs) Pac-Man yeast. That's cute. Yeah, I like that. I thought it was pretty great. When you look at how it's like animated, it's always like this little, like this little kernel that just kind of like, bloop. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so it eats the sugar and then it well we'll, we'll get to that anywho so so convert get ahead of yourself you're not allowed <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah no i'm not allowed this is this is an exciting and cool process so those malt enzymes convert the starch into sugars 
Steam can be used. Um, actually, there is it's it's interesting. Steam was used super prevalently throughout the Americas, but then it kind of like died out, except for one group, and then they hmm. trademarked it. <laughs> and so that's the American way, yeah, isn't it? Though. So, anyways, so then we are. Uh, oh gosh, decoction mashing. Wow, no, it's been a while since I've done the studies in this. Why don't you go ahead and take this one? Yeah, so uh, you have actually two ways that you can mash. So you have infusion mashing, which is where everything is just heated up together in one vessel. Mm -hmm. And then you have what's called decoction mashing, which is where you take a portion of the mash and you you put it into a separate vessel and you heat it up and then you return it back into the original mash i it i was not able to find in the article i got that information from exactly what the purpose is you might know this better than i do my guess is you're probably building up more flavor over a slower amount of time to make a more complex beer is that approximately right uh, i wouldn't be able to tell you by oh, okay. grade <laughs> um but i can tell you that that's a possibility it could also be possible that they're just trying to preserve some of the sugars for later Okay. So it could be so it could be a, an issue of complexity, it could be an issue of just utilizing your resources more. Mm -hmm. Um to tell you the truth, I don't know. We if anybody does know, DM us. We're actually going to hopefully be able to interview a couple of home brewers and maybe even some of the more popular brewers that uh that are in the area. We still have to get a hold of them. I know one for sure wants to interview with us, so that's going to be fun and we can we can ask them kind of about their method. A lot of home brewers like to experiment, yeah. so that'll be a lot of fun. So then, off of that though, you what is left that whatever liquid you have remaining after all of this yeah. is the wort. The and wort that is W O R T, not A R T, and that's just you're basically just water and sugars. Obviously, there's some other stuff in there, yeah, um, but that gets into the next step in process. Yeah, one of the one of the things that you have to make sure that you're doing in that is they actually have uh, some some very specific apparatus for that, especially for home brewers. And the main thing is that you actually do have tannins like you would have in in grapes that are inside of the husks of these different things. So the apparatuses are set up to drain the wort from the pulp, you could say, from the mash without actually releasing those tannins into the beer. You want your bitterness to come from other things. You don't want it to come from tannins inside of a beer. Yeah. So then after we get the wort separated, we are doing a process called laudering. So this is um, getting the mash out of all of that. You are having... Uh, oh, this is for mass production. I see. Um yeah, I, I tried to kind of go with whatever the most general terms yeah. of beer making were for this. There's, as with wine, there are so many production methods. Yeah, this is this is <laughs> so. a lot of, uh, there's a lot of clarification going on here. And not, mm -hmm. not every style does as much clarification. But yeah. When you get into more like craft brew, home brew, a lot of people are really playing with how much. Yeah, how much sediment they can have in there. In. Yeah. But this is kind of more your high volume. Yeah, methods. And, and some of these are actually these are actually all really good methods in order to kind of like preserve resources. So you are talking about getting the uh, the mash out, you're stabilizing the sugars, you're making it uh, less viscous and easier to work with. You can actually kind of refilter things. 
Um, that is one way to actually get some more of the flavor of the malts into it. You can also do sparging in order to get those sugars out that are inside of the wort. And that's one of those things where you're not pressing the mash in order to get them out. You are literally just rinsing the mash because, again, if you press them, you're going to get all of those tannins. Mm -hmm. um, and this also, if I'm not mistaken, this is also the step at which you would be diluting the mixture a little bit with some water anyway because a lot of times that wort is very strong. Yeah. So you you actually have to be thinking, is this drinkable? Mm -hmm. So then we would be boiling, we would be condensing the liquid, and this is the point at which we'd be adding our hops. Mm -hmm. Now, you can think of hops as kind of like the spice of a beer. So whereas you have all of these kind of sweeter notes, you have this a collection of sugar that's being drawn as a resource from your mash, your hops are going to be there in order to balance it out. So in our earlier episodes, we were talking about how we balance out acid inside of the wine. We balance out the tannins inside of the wine and the sweetness, if there's sweetness present. And yeah. all of this is basically to allow the chemical reaction that happens in our mouth to allow us to cut through whatever it is that we're drinking in order to experience it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same type of balance that you're trying to achieve inside of a beer, just with different components. Yeah. And I do just want to take a one step back to the boiling process before you add the hops. As you said, it does help kind of um, smooth out the wort. It also halts any more enzymatic yeah. processes from happening yeah. and continuing to convert anything into more sugar that you might not want to go into that fermentation vessel. Yeah. Like we said earlier, uh, the reason why it gets up to 170 and no further is because we're trying to preserve the enzymes, but now the enzymes have done their job. Yeah. So we need them to stop. Yep. All of this is about timing the resources of the mash, which is something we were talking about earlier. Again, something that I really love is the fact that you really are just taking these natural components and you're manipulating their environment and you're timing it in order to, to produce this stuff. Yep. So there are so many different types of hops that can be added. Sometimes more hops will be added than normal in order to achieve a different style. Might be added at a later stage. I didn't include all the stages that hopping does happen in these notes, just kind of for clarity's sake. We yeah. wanted to communicate how beer is basically done because yeah. everything kind of shoots off from this. Yeah. So just know that at this point in pretty much all beers, hopping will happen after you boil it to kill off the enzymes moving into the fermentation but after that in a lot of beers hops will be reintroduced at some point to do something to the flavor profile that that brewmaster wants yeah so and hops also so also the boiling process will help to kill anything that's in there that you're not wanting to react that's also uh going to affect the quality of the beer yeah each one of these steps is basically designed, again, as a preservative. So hops even uh, have a preservative function. And we'll go into this a little bit later, but that also the iso uh, alpha acids that are inside of them, they act as a preservative. These are, these are uh, antibacterial things that are inside of the hops that are actually allowing it to preserve the flavor of the beer, but also add bitterness and flavors uh, that are herbaceous or even fruity in some cases. Yeah. So then we have fermentation. Now, you know a lot more about yeasts than I do. Um, but basically, wine, wine will do that to you. Wine will do that to you. <laughs> Especially with the natural wine movement gaining more traction. Well, it's actually really interesting because home brewers, they end up 
experimenting with different types of yeast in order to get different types of effects. So let's let's talk about some some different types of yeasts. The basic reaction is this: that you you throw the yeasts into the stuff, you allow it to be at a specific temperature, maintained at around uh, sixty to sixty eight Fahrenheit for your ales, and around fifty Fahrenheit for your lagers. And these are kind of like two different types of yeasts. The ales are going to, uh, I believe, be top fermenting, whereas your lagers are bottom fermenting. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and so. With those, you actually can go even into a lot of different styles were developed because different countries had different temperatures. But the main reaction is this. The yeast consumes the sugars and produces alcohol. This this is something that we talked about inside of our wine stuff. It also produces carbon dioxide, which at this point you have like your most basic beer profile. And this is this is when you will have the the beer brewers tasting it, making sure that everything's right before getting on to the next step. I do want to hit on yeast a little bit. Please. So as with wine, you have commercial yeasts that are made in labs. I don't know what the most common, or even if there is a most common for that matter, um, yeast for beer. I know there is one for wine, um, Saccharomyces. I don't know if there's kind of a rough equivalent for beer or not, but there are industrial strains that some brewers use your high volume producers i can guarantee you are using industrial strains Mm -hmm. for consistency a lot of places around here and in the craft brew scene in general a lot of people like to use indigenous yeast Mm -hmm. fermentations indigenous yeast I, i think i've used that term a couple of times now and haven't really explained it indigenous yeast means wherever you're at right now there are yeast on your skin. Um, yeast are everywhere. They're, they're microbes and they're everywhere in breweries and wineries. And so when people talk about indigenous yeast, they're basically talking about whatever yeast is present going into the product. So with wine, that includes like what yeast is in or on the grapes themselves, what uh, yeasts are in the winery. Very similar with brewers. I know um, one brewer in particular in the area, Kindred Spirits, they went and collected samples from all over their building, like including like the roof, the parking lot, some trees nearby. Okay, I hadn't heard about this. Yeah, and and they started experimenting with them. Um, I do want to uh, give a caveat that they did test that in a lab, so yeah. there, there's yeast. These yeasts are safe to use yes. or consume, I should say. So th- th- you don't run a risk of making people sick with these yeast. But, you know, it can thank get down. Thank you, FDA. Yeah, thank you, please. <laughs> Don't let us get sick from drinking beer. But, yeah, you can you can go out and just take scrapings and develop your own strains of yeast that are just in your facility or your area and use those because you like the flavor profile that they'll provide to whatever product you're doing. It's very similar to bacteria in that, you know, bacteria are kind of constantly evolving. Yeast functions pretty much the same way. Mm-hmm constantly getting new kinds of yeast yeasts mutate very quickly all sorts of different strains in different places they're very localized so that's why yeast is so important and why so many craft brewers really like to think that it gives their beer if they are using indigenous yeast a sense of something unique to them that nobody else can really replicate so that's a very key factor in beer that is 
really cool. I didn't know that that, that uh, Kindred Spirits had done that. Yeah. I don't know if they still do. I mean, this was a couple years ago when I was told this, mm-hmm. um, but I, I assume they would still be. I mean, that could be what, like, my favorite beer from them, uh, the Headspace, is, is fermented with. Mm-hmm. Uh, another cool thing about yeast is once you cultivate the cultures, you can keep cultures in your facility and just use those yeah. instead of having to recollect them every year. I mean, that just opens up a whole series of other experiments that you could do. Yeah. Where you're just really cool. like generationally different, differently mutated yeast. Oh, yeah, that'd be if somebody does an experiment on that. Please invite me to your tasting. So the process of fermenting, we get that alcohol content. You can augment how you're doing that depending on what you're kind of going for. With ales, you'll typically have uh, more more fruity flavors, mm-hmm. and so you can do higher temperatures for that in order to to increase the level of what are called esters so esters are compounds inside of beers and wines that kind of imitate other flavors after that happens you can go on to conditioning the beer and so at this point some of this is done with like cellaring some of this is it's 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 depending on how you store it and depends on if it's an ale or a lager there's different yeah there's different procedures categories even within those that you will condition based off of what you're going for yeah so you you have a lot of these different things like what would be a couple of good examples of uh of different ways of conditioning it because we know that it's going to be between one to six weeks that we're conditioning it yep we're going to be basically just letting it settle this is going to to smooth it this is going to kind of congeal all the flavors together what would be some of the the examples of of different styles that you that you know of so uh, there's one example, which is lagering. That will be 30 days of cold storage. What I looked at didn't really state where or how. Um, I'm assuming that's kind of up to the brewer cellaring underground, maybe. Well, uh, I mean, fermentation with, with a tanks. lot of them, it's going to be huge tanks. Yeah. Um, especially because we're, we're not. So if it's like a Trappist monastery. They might actually have a cellar. Yeah. I mean, they have really strict methods that they have to do. But with mm-hmm. your, your like, Hardywood, uh, which we're actually currently drinking out of two Hardywood glasses. But we're not drinking Hardywood out of the Hardywood glasses. No, we're actually, right now, we are having a bright white uh, from Bell's, which is a Belgian-inspired wheat ale. It's very good. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He was actually headed over while I was re- reviewing the notes uh, that I had made when I was studying for the Cicerone beer servers test and uh i was just like man this is giving me some powerful cravings i need you to pick up something um so it just so happens to be that he ended up seeing a belgian inspired wheat ale and i was asking for a belgian style ipa but after he said belgian style wheat ale it kind of that that was the one they also didn't have a belgian ipa but you know they did they had it. It's called Raging Bitch, and it's oh, delicious. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Even uh, even Food Lion can have its day. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anybody that we bought beer at Food Lion. Oh, no, I have no, no shame in this. Uh, so yeah, back to lagering though. So it, where you do your storage, that can vary. Um, but it'll produce a cleaner, more well-defined beer. You also have Krausening. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's about as well as I would guess. So that is where, if you're familiar with Valpolicella Amarone Repasso mm. wines, mm. very similar idea to those wines, 
what you're doing is you're introducing and actively fermenting beer Mm -hmm. into the already fermented beer. That is going to give you more carbonation. It's going to take out uh, diacetyl flavors, which are kind of like your your butterscotch kind of flavors and other compounds that you might not want in that particular beer. So it, it kind of serves the function of making the beer even more smooth. Yeah, and kind of refining the character. Yeah, almost not a filter in a literal sense but kind of in a more abstract way almost kind of filtering the wine or the beer excuse me it's kind of like underlining the statement to, to put it in a, in a literary term you have the beer and then you have how it's developed and then you're just kind of reaffirming this is what we wanted yeah this is the beer these are the these are the things inside of it so that's um those are two ways that you can condition um there's other ones out there but I didn't want to get too bogged down in all of those methods. So that brings us to the packaging and carbonation then. You basically, it's it's forced carbonation, or in, in some cases, you can just add CO2 to a container under high pressure, or you can add a little bit of sugar and yeast and then cap it, and then that will allow it to carbonate inside of the bottle. Or you can even attempt to do it inside of the cask itself. So you add hops, sugar, and yeast, and then it reacts as it does, and there you have it, a carbonated beer. And you can also uh, even carbonate during the act of crossing, since that is also going to produce carbon dioxide. So as long as it's sealed, as long as it's uh, not allowed to leak out that carbon dioxide, that carbon dioxide will have to become part of the solution. And from that is basically where every beer comes from some variation on this is going to be how every single beer is pretty much made yeah even even down to yeast so the most popular style that there is right now is light lagers and uh, pale ales specifically light beers which have certain things added to them so you have ales this is the oldest style of beer the lighter beers were kind of introduced later on they added corn and rice into the mash in order to kind of decrease the calorie count. And that's become super, super popular. But ales in general, this is the oldest stuff that you have. And it's typically going to be a warm temperature fermentation for a relatively short amount of time. This is top fermenting yeasts. So a lot of you can have flavor profiles ranging from your lighter kind of cereal malts and this is going to be kind of like what you would find in a, a bakery. So like your uh, your cracker, your dough, that that's the sort of thing. And especially with your super light beers, there's just going to be like no bitterness whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But you can also have notes that get a little darker with those. It's it's typically going to be more on the fruity side with your ales as opposed to your lagers. Though. Yeah. Um, so with lagers. So that's a, a newer style of beer uh, yeah. developed more recently. You're fermenting for a longer time at a lower temperature, and those are your bottom fermenting yeasts. So again, different flavor profile in those yeasts typically. They're more common among European countries, think like Germany and and the Netherlands. Um, You also have Canada. They make up for more than half of all beer sales. Yeah. Fun little tidbit I found out. So uh, those are your two base beers. And everything else is just a variation on those two yeah 
So then you have porters. We were actually talking about this a little earlier. What we know as porter now is not the same as what porters were in the past. Uh, porters in the past were actually made by combining older and younger darkly roasted malt beers together in order to create a specific profile. And then as time went on, it kind of diverged into what we know as porters and stouts. Yeah. So we have porters and it's a type of ale. It's known for its dark black color and its roasted malt aroma. These can be fruity or dry in flavor um, and typically are determined by the roasted malt used inside of the brewing process. They're going to be kind of like a heavier body. You're typically going to get notes of chocolate, vanilla. Yeah. Some of those roasty characters can come in depending on what it is. And a lot of the craft beer scene will also introduce flavors uh, in order to kind of pair with those. I've seen everything from peanut butter and sweet baby Jesus to things like actually smoking the malts beforehand in order to yeah. give it a nice kind of rounded, almost bacon-like flavor. That sounds awful, but trust me, it's delicious. It, that actually is that style you're talking about is my preferred style of porter. I, I'm more of a dark beer guy myself. Michael's mm. much more on the light beer side of things. Um, I used to be into darker beers, but I got all darked out with uh, with as many Kentucky Christmas mornings as I have. <laughs> Don't you dare say anything bad about that beer. I that, love that no, beer. <laughs> that beer is so beautiful, but it's I intense. Mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. And it, was, it wasn't even like it's a I full was, pancake breakfast. Well, and I've even had like beer for breakfast not beer for breakfast but the beer called beer for breakfast <laughs> um which was like a, a it was dogfish head and it, it tasted like sausage and gravy and it was somehow delicious because it also <laughs> tasted like pancakes <laughs> this it, it, people get way too creative with this stuff and it's yeah. all but i i had like too many dark beers and suddenly i was just like i just can't do it yeah I feel it's that. all too heavy i feel that you know i can only i can only watch ghost in the shell but so many times before <laughs> i need lighter themes <laughs> like you know what i mean yeah totally um so we get from our porters which are also going to be a bit more on the sweet side to our stouts stouts are going to be a little bit more on the dry side some of the time depends you, on what's added in afterward normally yeah so like if you have your gingerbread stout no that's going to be sweet that's yeah. th that one was almost syrupy in 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 a way but the alcohol thick. yeah thick very thick but even that one was kind of balanced out by the alcohol content yeah so whereas porter is going to have cocoa you're going to think about stout as having coffee. Mm -hmm. So it's roasted notes. Yeah. Those can be often fairly overpowering in some cases. With American-style stouts, you're looking at a lot more of those roasty flavors, whereas when you get into your European ones, especially like an Irish stout, it's actually going to be fairly easy drinking. And then when you get into your imperial stouts, that's actually uh, that was taken from the Russian imperial family. They just liked things stronger. So anytime that you see Imperial in front of the name, it's typically that it's that, but with more alcohol. Yeah. And in my experience, I don't know if this is a production method thing. Imperial stouts tend to be a little bit more bitter as well. That can definitely be an element. So those are kind of our, our darkest beers outside of kind of our German styles. Yeah. So then we can go into our blonde ales. So a blonde ale is going to be pretty easy drinking overall. You're going to have a little bit of malty kind of sweetness, a little bit of hops, not like um, what we'll get into later with like pale ales necessarily. They are pale in color, though, typically clear body. 
And they're just kind of like crisp, dry, just that hint of bitterness from the hops. But Mm -hmm. overall, easy drinking style of beer, great summer beer, at least for me. That's what I like to drink them or the time of year that I like to drink them. Um, Oh, one thing that you have here in the notes that I forgot to mention, which is actually one of the most important parts of beer, is the head. Yes. Now, uh, typically when you're serving beer, you're going to want like two, maybe just one inch of head on a beer. Now, head is basically when the carbon is combining with a bunch of the other compounds that are inside of the beer, and it's producing that foamy layer up at the top. So different types of beer will actually produce different types of head. Yeah. In the case of porters and stouts, you're going to have a little bit more of the creaminess, especially with stouts. If you've ever had a Guinness especially, they actually will typically serve that on nitro, so you get even more creaminess out of it. But it also has to do with your aromatics. So we always talk about how a thing smells. It's not just about the flavor. The aromatics are going to be super highly concentrated inside of that head as those bubbles are kind of uh, popping. They're all kind of decompressing. That's going to be released right into the top of your glass. And that's why even if you don't have a tapered glass, you can actually get a nice good whiff of whatever it is that you're about to drink. Yeah. Do you know... uh the trick of how they get those really frothy heads in beer commercials. Oh, what do they do? They put dish detergent oh. in the beer and that's how they get that they like perfect <laughs> foamy head. No, but that's how they do it. it. Oh gosh. The if you ever want to go down a really at least if you're like me and really nerdy a really interesting rabbit hole, look up how they film food commercials and all the tricks that they use. I know for- the way that they do milk in cereal. I don't know that one. What's that one? Glue. It's just straight up glue. That that makes that. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, Yeah. no, there's all sorts of really gross, disgusting things that they do to food to make it look appetizing on screen. But it's it's not. Yeah, it's actually not. There's a really interesting video going back to beer of uh, there was a commercial for was it Shock Top? I don't remember who it was for necessarily, but it was a video about a guy who built a robotic rig to get this spinning shot of ice dropping into a beer and how that all worked out it's on youtube if you can find it i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head unfortunately but yeah anyway no that's huge rabbit trail no 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 no. i'm like i'm super into it because like whenever i've been watching like tv shows or movies lately the main question that i i've been asking myself was because we kind of take it for granted in the age of advertisement it's like but how did they get yeah, that but how, shot? Yeah, because it doesn't look like that. Um, McDonald's is the quintessential example, right? Of like, wow, that Big Mac on the commercial looks incredible. But when you get it in real life, it doesn't look so hot. It's it's interesting. But I would, oh, the, the idea of like dish soap inside of. So yeah. if you want real good head on your uh, in your beer. <laughs> um, Maybe for your Instagram photos of your beer. <laughs> don't do that. What you want to do is you want to just make sure that your glassware is clean because too much head is typically going to be caused by this is this is a rabbit trail, but this is a a useful one. Uh, Too much head is going to be caused by impurities inside of the glass. So make sure that your glass is clean. Then you're going to want to rinse it out. Then you're going to want to dry it, but not with a cloth before putting the beer inside. You also don't want to put your beer glasses inside of the freezer. That's a common misconception that that's going to somehow improve the quality. If you do want to store them cold, just, you know, put them in the refrigerator if you need to. Yeah. Um, because if you freeze them, it actually it's it's uh, it's going to react with the beer in a way that's going to also affect the head and possibly even the texture of the beer. So just 
Yeah. Th- that's all you really need to know. Remember to sanitize your stuff. Remember to make sure that it's dry. Don't put it in a warm glass and you'll get some pretty good beer if you're if you're pouring it correctly. The other thing is uh, if you have friends who are constantly complaining about their stomach hurting while they're drinking beer, just make a note of if they're drinking it out of a bottle or out of a glass because typically if they're drinking it out of the bottle, they're releasing all of that carbon dioxide in their stomach as opposed to in the glass. So there's your there's your little and if you've ever been in a restaurant and you always and you commonly order beer but you never understood why your waitress or waiter will pour the beer on the side of the glass that's to help with the carbon dioxide management exactly uh if you pour it just directly into the bottom you get a lot more foam on the head because a lot more of that carbon dioxide is being released all at once and you kind of actually don't want that it's yeah. a little bit too much at once you want to you want to basically hold it on the side of the glass until it gets to about two-thirds of the way up then you pour it over the top you release a lot of that carbon dioxide so it's easier on your stomach and you also have the appropriate amount of head in order to be able to smell the savory aroma if it's savory and speaking of aromas let's yes. move back into yes. the kinds of beers so sorry got into that tangent yeah. of serving because that i've, I've it's had important a lot, it's important well, well and i've had a lot of friends who were like well i'm not sure i can drink beer it hurts my stomach i think i might be celiac or whatever and i'm just like well you keep on drinking that out of the bottle and that's that's going to make your stomach feel all bloaty. So getting back into it. So we had our blonde ales. Yep. Now we're getting into our brown ales. Probably the most popular one that I can think of in Richmond is going to be the Legend Brown Ale. It's actually probably my go-to beer at most places, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's, I always it's know solid. it's going to be good, yeah. It's it's pretty solid. There are others that are good. You can have uh like Newcastle Brown, that's going to be your your more British style, but a lot of these are going to be uh ranging from amber to brown in color. They'll have more caramelized notes. You can have elements of citrus. You can have elements of nut. There's uh, a lot of chocolate that can be in there. Different countries do different variations on this depending on where it's coming from. Yeah, your your grist bill is going to be pretty different depending on where it's from. So that's going to... I have to start using that grist bill. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fun term, right? That is such a fun... I mean, like, obviously, I don't... I, I'm not an idiot in this. But that makes me sound so much smarter. Hey, you learn something new every day. Might as well use it, right? Okay, yeah. I mean, I gotta, I gotta value your research. You're good at this. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the different malts used, country of origin, it can greatly affect the flavor and the scent. I love the Legend Brown. I think it's, it's actually a little bit sweeter as far as browns go. Whereas, how would you describe? Have you had Newcastle in comparison? I've had it. I could. It was a long time ago. I couldn't really tell you off the top of my it's head. A bit lighter the in profile. Body. I okay. think. But yeah, different areas will have different things just because yeah. even the the things grown in those areas is just different. Yeah. And, and English beers that I've had in general, which granted has not been a lot or English style beers typically seem to be a little bit lighter than at least American or German counterparts. So, yeah. Well, I mean, anything that is made in America, uh, as far as beer goes, it's always just like, well, we want this, but let's like do more yeah well outside of your you know super high volume brands at least outside of the dieting brands so then we have pale ales so this is getting into uh some of our our newer style stuff because for a long time pale ales weren't even a thing that technologically was possible so once it be kind of came a thing it ended up going from place to place this is a 
a very popular style of ale, especially for summer. So it's known for a copper color. It's fruity. We have a lot of American pale ales, which are a kind of hybrid between the traditional pale uh, English pale ale and the IPA style. It's going to have a little bit more of a balanced profile, I would say. You're not getting as much of the sweet. You are also getting that nice hoppy flavor in there, so you can get some of that character in there as well. So we have our pale ales, and then we have our India pale ales. So this is just basically lots of hops, and that's that's how it started. There is a common misconception that the reason why India Pale Ale exists is because all the beer was going bad when they were colonizing India from England. That is not what actually happened. All of the different styles of beer were being imported into India just fine. They did increase the level of hops that they had in all of their styles just for preservation, but a lot of them were already pretty stable. Yeah, so if you remember, we mentioned earlier in the episode, the bittering agents that hops in part are also preservatives in beer. Mm-hmm. So that is so that. the reasoning for that. The thing is, in and I had my own personal theories for, for why this is, uh, just based on climate and demand, but the super high hopped pale ales ended up being the ones that became the most popular. So it, was, it wasn't so much an issue of shipping necessity as it was actually an issue of demand. Once the infrastructure was in place, they really just preferred this stuff. However, it was also a way of preserving the stuff. Yeah. Richmond seems to have followed suit in the popularity oh uh, aspect. I, I will admit, and if anyone from Richmond listens to this episode, they might yell at me. IPAs are my least favorite kind of beer. <laughs> um, I love a good IPA. I've I've had ones. That, I mean, I just mentioned the Falcon Smash. I actually really like that beer, but it's because it's juicy. Yeah, but we got to a point, at least here in Richmond, mm-hmm. where people were putting way too many hops. And I've already mentioned I'm very sensitive to bitter flavors, so IPAs are already a little bit on the fence for yeah. me. They can't be too bitter, or else I I can't drink them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, so they tend to be very citrusy or resinous. Mm-hmm. Think like pine resinous. Mm-hmm. And those are, I like citrus. I don't like licking grapefruit peels. <laughs> There's a difference Which in my where mind. me and Gabe differ so much. <laughs> yeah, Michael loves IPAs. They're just, they're not really for me. But if you do like bitter flavors or you like that really intense bite, IPAs are great. Oh, yeah. Well, and the thing is, we did have that race all across the craft beer industry right around 2014, 2015, where everybody was just trying to see how much hop yeah. they could get into a beer. Yeah. Now, what that ended up producing is a lot of the beers that I really enjoy, a lot of double IPAs, uh, some of which are just now getting back into the area, which I really love. But the other thing is, is that it actually helped to uh, that boon ended up funding a lot of people who are producing hops to create all these different varietals that's now allowed a lot more finesse in adding hops. So if you see it as the spice, we now just have a greater variation of spice. So people who are creating beers with the uh, the moderation of hops that Gabe appreciates, they're enabled a little bit more because of the funding that went into that because of the insane amount of hops that were being promoted at the time. Yeah. Uh, while at the same time, a lot of different styles, a lot of the the freshness of the industry for IPAs is still booming because of the fact that these growers are so capable of creating different flavor profiles. And 
Another thing is that they'll uh, do it without more heavily filtering them in order to give it more body. And that's where you can kind of get your more hazy IPAs. All of these can even be opaque in color. So you can really go from your I'm I'm crushable, but I, I really shouldn't be IPAs, which are like 12%, but super juicy to your IPAs that are not crushable whatsoever that insult you on the bottle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and those are all those are all a lot of fun, actually. They're also uh, if you are doing a tasting, we we recommend that you do your IPAs last because those will wreck your palate for anything else that you're drinking. Yeah. So then we can get into what is Gabe's apparently one of his favorite yes. beers, which is I, w- I would say this is my favorite. Style this is of beer. your favorite. Yeah, it's kind of a toss up. I really like sours, which we'll get into at the end and uh, stouts. But the beer that I want to drink the most often, I would say, is red ales. So uh, you know, a red ale has a, a moderate amount of, um, you know, malts. Um, they're not as intensely roasty as a stout or a porter is going to be but they still have that character at, at its core they're typically uh amber colored there's a reason they're called a red ale you will notice a very noticeable you notice a very noticeable <laughs> red <laughs> redundancy uh love it you'll you will notice though that red color it, yeah. it's going to be in that beer it is uh it can be brewed like a lager or an ale mm-hmm so I again that kind of goes into the beer producer or the brewer's decision on how they want that beer to taste in the long run. They often have kind of like a medium level of sweetness on the beer scale. They can be almost candy like, but I've also had some that go really bacony. Uh, we were talking about bacon mm-hmm. earlier in porters. Uh red ales are ones that I've had some that are very bacony. Again, it it sounds kind of gross, but at least for me, it's really not. Um, if you've ever had a wine that kind of had that meaty character to it, where you were kind of thinking like maybe salami or pepperoni or something, think mm-hmm. of kind of like that, where it's not like you're sticking a piece of bacon in your mouth, but that that meatiness, that savory character, and almost that saltiness kind of comes through. That that in particular is actually the style of red ale that I like the most. I, I do but it love is the... without adding salt. That's actually Correct. something that's yeah. pretty much exclusive to the Goza style. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're not adding salt, but it it, it can kind of come across it as can an impression. Come across that way. Yeah. Of just how your brain reads those no, esters. Yeah. And there is a difference between how uh, whereas you have American reds as opposed to Irish reds. Irish reds are actually made that way by just adding a small amount of roasted barley. Um, so it's kind of like a you can think of it as like a rosé type deal as far as the staining is concerned. But what are we what are we talking about as far as notes inside of of these? Uh, so you typically are looking at like caramel, toffee, kind of like a, I would bring coffee back into the equation for this one. But typically kind of like your medium roast coffees mm-hmm. where it's not like that high tone, more floral, fruity character of a light roast coffee, but it's not that bitter very dark flavor of a of a dark roast coffee either it's kind of that sweet spot where it's just those kind of sweet coffee flavors where you get those kind of like muted caramel notes that Mm -hmm. are just slightly roasty yeah red ales are another i like them as a summer beer but i also tend to not go super light drinking for summer so keep that in mind Mm -hmm. and i love these in cooking especially if you're cooking with lamb red ales are delicious yeah 
that I, I've never tried it with lamb, but that actually is a really good oh my gosh. idea. I need to try that. Irish red lamb stew. You get some carrots, you get some potatoes, you get some lamb, <laughs> and you pour in the beer, and it's beautiful. And red ales can also contain um, kind of some lesser used materials such as corn and rice and sugar, and they help dry out the finish, and they'll also kind of lessen the body a little bit. And as we kind of already said, with roasted, roasted barley is kind of a feature in a lot of red ales. Yeah. So moving on from there, we also have our wheat beers. Now, these are a collection of malts that are, they're wheat, obviously. You're also going to have them for lighter styles. A lot of you might know the style of Hefeweizen. That is going to be a common one. Actually, the first Hefeweizen I ever had was the Love from Star Hill, which I uh, I cannot speak to everybody's opinion on Star Hill, but I can say that I loved uh, that particular experience. So it's easy drinking. It's known for its softness. It's a smooth flavor. They're going to be more on uh, the lines of things that are fruity, citrus flavors, light spices. This stuff is not going to be too much for pretty much anybody. This is a very soft-spoken beer that you can serve to people who maybe are more on the side of liking I would say not quite as sweet as Moscato, but who are more on that vein, who like Prosecco. If you know somebody who's drinking those things, you could probably get them on board with a Hefeweizen. Yeah. Then moving on, we get to Pilsner. Pilsner is very uh, important as far as its development. It actually, if I'm not mistaken, originated in in Czech and since then has been turned into a brand name in the Czech uh, Republic, but... In other countries, it was able to advance. It's one of the the hoppiest lagers. This is a very well-balanced beer. It does feature some bitterness, but it is so well-balanced. Yeah, this is a bitterness that I can tolerate really well. I I actually, um, Hardywood has, they call it the Pils, but Mm -hmm. it's a Pilsner-style beer that I really like. Yeah, and I actually have one in the fridge uh, right now from Wicked Weed Brewing Company out, uh, out of Asheville in North Carolina solid stuff it's got a heavier body than your typical pale ale or your or even your wheat beer wheat beers can have a little bit more body to them yeah um but pilsner is going to have a nice bit of body it's got some good clarity it's crisp but at the same time there's enough grain there for you to kind of know what you're drinking yeah i love these beers i'm gonna probably have one after after we're done here and then we get on to our sour ales, which get into all sorts of funkiness and all sorts of variety as far as different yeasts and processes that create them. Yeah, I think that's why I like them so much is they're so experimental. Yeah, you and you can, can get all sorts of wild stuff out of them. Yeah, and I, I almost feel like that goes back into the issue of like terroir where we're talking about the different yeasts that are available because a lot of sour ales are fermented by wild yeast yeah they're they are highly we were talking about how important yeast is to all beers earlier Mm -hmm. but sours in particular are yeast driven beer that is the selling point in my experience at least on Mm -hmm. most sours is this is the weird funky yeast we found out in the middle of the woods somewhere and we put it in our vats and this is what happened a lot of the flavors that you get are also caused by bacterial fermentation those can produce uh, lactic acid which is is going to uh, increase the sweetness of the beer because yeast can't ferment that. But these beers can get super weird. One of the most common um, is, that I know of, it's called Brett after the uh, type Brettanomyces. Which will also show up in wine, fun fact. Yeah. Oh, really? 
Yeah. So, Brett, uh, if you've ever had a wine that smelled maybe a little bit, uh, this might be offensive to some people, but a little bit like animal sweat Mm -hmm. or uh, some people say it smells like farming, uh, barnyard. Some people will even say feet. That's a little too much even for me. Oh, yeah. What was it that I heard once? Horse blanket? Horse blanket. Yeah. um, That's Brett. That's Brett. In a wine. It's very overpowering in larger amounts. And it's something you have to really, even in beer and sours, you have to very closely monitor the proportion of Brett in that drink because it will very easily just make it undrinkable it, it, to me. Yeah. At least. So with these, you have your Gozes, you have your Lambics uh, out of Germany, you have your Flanders, you have your Farmhouse, uh, you have your Saison. Saison is, is one of my favorites. Actually, I think probably the Ardent Saison is one of my favorites. That's in Richmond. That is a really good one. That is, I mean, to style is especially good. I'm a um, Goza person myself because I really uh, – sour ales tend to be very tangy. Mm-hmm. And Gozas, they they have that tang, but it's it's comp- – they tend to have coriander and sea salt, and they just have this very nice um, – the tanginess kind of with that – I can't even really call it saltiness in a Goza, but it, it's – Oh, there is saltiness in it. It's certainly. saltiness, but it's not necessarily how – you would think of salt. Yeah, because it actually highlights more of that sourness and actually yeah. a little bit of, it gives the impression of sweetness, I should say. Yeah, I would say it almost makes it a little bit more elegant, I guess, is what I'm trying to get after. Yeah, I could, t- totally that. It, uh, it, it's almost like it allows for that sourness to, to just kind of pierce into your palate. It really, these are things that make your mouth water. Yeah. And it's not like, oh, you're thinking about something delicious and so your mouth is water. It's like force making your mouth water. I I do want to kind of caution people. So, you know, I guess I, as a sour drinker, might be what the um, what I would consider to be the overly hopped IPA drinker of 2015 was. (laughs) I really like wild, funky, crazy beers. These are very adventurous beers for most beer drinkers, even like very consistent beer drinkers. I know people who can drink stouts and ipas all day long but they will not drink sours because mm-hmm. they're just too funky give them you know i would say maybe start with like a saison or saison yeah uh, i th- that's kind of i think your entry, especially if you're a, a good, wine drinker yeah that's i think a good entry into sours but i've had some like wild sours that were too much even for me so they can get really gnarly but yeah. in general, I love them. The one that I was referring to called Brett, that's one that's, I think, particularly well-balanced. But if it's the first sour that you go for, it's like a punch in the jaw. Yeah. So I just be careful is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. If you're not used to this style of beer, you've never had one, just be careful. Oh, yeah. But they're they're fantastic yeah. uh, things. They're typically going to be mixed with fruit, yep. especially your uh, your Belgian sours. They'll put in things like raspberries. I've even seen things like white miso put in them, though. Interesting. Oh, yeah. No. That would actually, that in my mind, Brett would go really well with that. Mm-hmm. If you've never tried a beer from Collective Arts, they do some wild, funky variations on different types of sours and stouts. Those those have been some of the most uh, chefly recipes that I've seen, if I can put it that way. Yeah. But that kind of goes through our basic beer types, you know. So, again, we separate it into ales and lagers, and then we're talking style. You have porters, stout, blonde ale, brown ales, pale ales, India pale ales, red ales, wheat, pilsner, and sour. Yeah. Those are kind of your your basic rundown. What people can do with those 
is staggering. Yeah, I mean, you start getting into like doubles, triples, quadruples. It yeah. has its own thing. Uh, and, mostly and, to do with strength of alcohol. Yeah. I should I should say uh, it can get kind of uh, hellacious uh, when you are trying to navigate, especially the international scene. I would say go ahead and look up translations for things, especially when you're looking at German beers. Yeah. Like I was mentioning uh, earlier before we were recording this, like Helles, that literally just means light. You can have Keller beer, which is literally just cellar beer. So having a, a couple of these things, it's it doesn't have to be as complicated as a lot of beer snobs might make it out to be. A lot of these things is just a matter of translation. It's just a matter of locality, but it's it's a world worth exploring. So uh, any final thoughts, any final experiences that we want to mention before we, we sign off here? I mean, I as with wineries, I love going to breweries. So if you're in an area that has a couple, check them out. Normally they're, at least around here, they tend to be pretty relaxed. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them now are going to a very family-friendly yeah, business kind of model so you don't necessarily have to worry about people i mean as with anything you have to worry about drunk people but even at wineries but you know the expectation is not going to be that you're going to be like at a bar per se because yeah. yeah. a lot of the people that got into these these breweries they've grown up now and gotten families and well they still like hanging out there so yeah so, you know, just check out whatever's around your your area. If you're in Richmond and you somehow didn't know about the craft beer scene, definitely mm-hmm. check it out and just experiment. It's like I say with wine, I'm if you say you don't like wine, I can guarantee you I can find you a wine that you'll like. I would say the same thing with beer. If you say you don't like beer, there's probably a beer out there for you somewhere. Yeah. It's just a matter of finding out the style that you like. And maybe we could go into that into a later episode, just as far as recommendations, what what style of beer might be the thing that you want to you want to try out first. And we can do mm-hmm. some direct comparisons. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. We, we like our beverages. I also think we want to go a little bit more into the history of beer and where some of these different styles were developed. But in any case, you guys can let us know. We really enjoy this topic. Very obviously, I especially get excited about beer. <laughs> so, yeah, no. Uh, this is this has been fun. This has been a fun conversation. Very much so. Uh, so I've been Michael. I've been Gabe. Thank you very much, guys.